welcome to another edition of the Sally Lloyd 70s podcast, the podcast that celebrates the films of the 1970s, whether they deserve it or not. Thanks for joining me on this series, which is currently focusing on the UK film releases of the year 1970. And this week, we're going to be saluting two film series which formed the bedrock of British film comedy from the 1950s all the way through to the early 70s the Carry On and Doctor in the House film franchises. Despite being uniquely British products, the films themselves captured such recognisable human situations and characters, from workplace dramas and midlife crises to class struggles and battles with petty bureaucracy, that they struck a chord with fans far beyond these shores. While the characters on screen may often have seemed like caricatures, there was something so very relatable about their self-doubt their hubris, and their unfailing ability to make fools of themselves. The Carry On franchise in particular combined music hall-style comedy and seaside postcard visuals with stories set in particularly British class or rank-driven institutions like the NHS, the police or the armed forces. That's when it wasn't mocking popular movie genres of the day like historic costume dramas or even the James Bond franchise. Meanwhile, the Doctor in the House series of films showed that even such establishment figures as professional medics could find themselves the underdog in the right circumstances. Neither was planned as a franchise, both starting out life as one-off film comedies that somehow caught the public imagination and then became such unexpected box office successes that repeat business was soon demanded by the studios. But that's not all they have in common. These two formidable film franchises were inextricably linked by blood and marriage. And to tie all the threads together, we're going to start somewhere unexpected. The Nazi-occupied Channel Islands. Or to be exact, a 1951 film called Appointment with Venus, starring David Niven and Glynis Johns, a light-hearted comedy drama about the rescue of a prize pedigree cow from one of the German-occupied Channel Islands during the war. The producers of Appointment with Venus were Betty E. Box and Peter Rogers, a married couple who had met while working together at the Rank organisation. Peter Rogers had first worked in the West End Theatre and then Fleet Street before the Second World War. But after being invalided out of active service in the early 40s, he joined the film industry. First as a scriptwriter for religious films, then as assistant scenario editor at Rank-owned Gainsborough Pictures, which is where he met his future wife, Betty E. Box. Betty, one of the three highly successful filmmaking members of the Box family, had been put in charge of Gainsborough Pictures Islington Studios by her brother, Sidney. But this was no mere nepotism, by the way. Betty E. Box became one of Britain's most successful film producers, gaining herself the nickname Betty Box Office. The director of Appointment with Venus was Rafe Thomas. Like Peter Rogers, Rafe too had a background in journalism, having gone to work at the Bristol Evening Post after graduating from a law degree. And that's where a chance encounter with Oscar Deutsch, owner of the famous Odeon cinema chain, led to an offer of an apprenticeship at Shepperton Studios, where Rafe had previously worked as a clapper boy during his university holidays. Rafe rose up through the ranks of the sound and art departments, finally settling on editing as his specialty before his career was put on hold by the Second World War. Rafe joined the 9th Lancers, fighting in Al Alamein, rising to the rank of major and being awarded the Military Cross. On leaving the army in 1945, Rafe Thomas returned to film editing, working on classic Carol Reed thriller Odd Man Out and then rising to the head of the trailer department until his skill in the editing room caught the eye of Betty Box's brother, Sidney Box, who offered him an opportunity to direct. And it was during this time that Rafe met producer Betty Box, and the two hit it off immediately. When Rank closed down Gainsborough Pictures, Rafe and Betty moved to Pinewood Studios together and began a filmmaking collaboration which would produce over 20 films. And to complete the family affair that is an appointment with Venus, the film was edited by Rafe Thomas's brother Gerald. 
Big Brother Rafe had been distracted from a potential career in the law by the allure of journalism and filmmaking. But for Gerald, it was a career in medicine which was cast aside. Gerald was still at university when World War II broke out, and after four years of active service in the army, he felt it was just too late to return to education once he was demobbed. Instead, Gerald joined Denham Studios, and like his brother, he fell into editing. An appointment with Venus was his third feature editing credit, before starting a career as a director in 1956 with the Children's Film Foundation. Appointment with Venus was the fourth and final feature to be co-produced by Betty Box and her husband Peter Rogers, as their careers proceeded to branch out down different paths as the 1950s progressed. One day in 1953, Betty was browsing the bookstands at Crewe Railway Station, looking for something to while away her journey, when she came across a book called Doctor in the House, the first in what was to be a highly successful series of autobiographical novels by British surgeon and anesthesiologist Richard Gordon, in which he recanted tales from his time as a medical student. Betty's astute eye quickly saw the cinematic potential in the book and the comedic real-life experiences recounted by Gordon. The rank organisation were initially less convinced because of the lack of a central plot, but both Betty and her director Rafe Thomas knew they were onto something, so they hired an appointment with Venus scriptwriter Nicholas Phipps to work on a screenplay. And in 1954, Box and Thomas's film adaptation of Doctor in the House was released, and to everyone's surprise, it became the biggest box office smash of the year recouping its budget from its sales at one West End cinema alone. As a quick side note, screenwriter Nicholas Phipps was also a successful actor. He had played the minister in Appointment with Venus, and you'll also see him in Doctor in the House, where he plays the magistrate. And this won't be the last we'll see of Nicholas Phipps, as his final big screen appearance coincidentally came in 1970, in The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer, which is a film we'll be covering later in the series. But back to Doctor in the House, which was such a massive success that studio heads inevitably demanded a follow-up. And as Richard Gordon obligingly kept producing numerous sequels to his original autobiography, so Betty and Rafe continued adapting them to the delight of the cinema-going public. However, over time, Box and Thomas lost heart in this unplanned franchise, preferring to work on other more serious and dramatic films. But eventually, they settled into an arrangement with the studio whereby the profits of the Doctor films could be used to finance the work that they were really passionate about. Films like A Conspiracy of Hearts, Campbell's Kingdom or The 39 Steps on the proviso that they didn't go over budget and the films were, in the words of the studio, not too idiotic. And while Betty Box and Rafe Thomas were busy with the Doctor in the House franchise, Betty's husband Peter Rogers and Rafe's brother Gerald Thomas went on to form a legendary and lasting filmmaking partnership. Starting with Thomas's first feature directing credit, children's film foundation movie Circus Friends in 1956. Three more joint productions were to follow, including a well-regarded thriller called Time Lock, featuring Sean Connery in his first on-screen speaking role, before Rogers and Thomas started work on the project which would take over their careers an adaptation of a TV drama called The Bull Boys, which had followed the story of a ballet dancer whose fiancé receives his national service call-up papers on the day of their wedding. Screenwriter Norman Hudis was hired to adapt the story, and he quickly decided to abandon the love interest and focus on the humour of barrack room life, which had already proved popular with the public through recent TV series The Army Game which itself was inspired by the 1956 Balting Brothers film Private's Progress. Hudis's instincts proved correct, and when the film was released in 1958 under the name Carry On Sergeant, it seemed to touch a nerve with the public. Perhaps because, like the production team, many of them would also have had military experience, either through active service during the war or compulsory national service afterwards. Carry On Sergeant became the third biggest selling film of 1958 at the UK box office, and much like Doctor in the House before it, a sequel was soon expected. So just a year later, 
Rogers and Thomas produced their follow-up, Carry On Nurse, this time based on another familiar British institution, the NHS. Given the ongoing success of the Doctor in the House franchise, this must have seemed like an obvious new setting to explore. And indeed, it proved to be an inspired choice, as the sequel was even more successful than its predecessor, topping the UK box office that year and enjoying a two and a half year run in the US. In total, Gerald Thomas and Peter Rogers went on to make 31 carry-on films, as well as other hugely popular comedies in a similar style, like Raising the Wind, Twice Around the Daffodils and The Iron Maiden. By 1970, however, both the carry-on and Doctor in the House film series were getting a little past their best before date. Doctor in Trouble was the last of the seven films in the Doctor franchise, with Betty Box and Rafe Thomas losing heart after it became clear that James Robertson Justice was no longer well enough to continue playing the key role of Sir Lancelot Spratt. They'd been wearying of the films for some time, and they were happy to sign over the rights to the new Doctor in the House TV series, which was being made concurrently with this final movie. While Gerald Thomas and Peter Rogers were still enthusiastic about the Carry On series as the new decade began, there had been a definite shift in the comedic tone since Norman Hudis handed over screenwriting duties to Talbot Rothwell in 1963. And while the later Carry On films are probably the most famous and well-remembered, the tone is much broader and more risque. And this became ever more the case as the swinging 60s transitioned into the even more permissive 70s. But the franchise was now such a predictable staple of British comedy that the audiences just kept coming. And both Carry On Up the Jungle and Carry On Loving were in the top 10 selling films of 1970, despite increasingly scathing critical reactions. So there we have it. Whatever we may think about this week's movies, and goodness knows they've not really stood the test of time that well, they and the franchises they belong to provided UK film lovers with years, decades even, of laughter, escapism, sharp one-liners, silly visual gags, the pricking of pomposity, and an oh-so-British style of comedy that felt comfortingly reliable. So much so that the Doctor in the House and Carry On film franchises played a significant part in propping up the flagging British film industry during its darkest days. And in the case of the Carry On films in particular, have embedded themselves in the national psyche. And while that is, of course, due in large part to the legendary performers involved, the revolving ensemble cast of actors whose faces over time came to seem as familiar as your own family. I just wanted to take this moment to recognise and celebrate the extraordinarily successful careers of Betty Box, Peter Rogers and the Thomas brothers, Rafe and Gerald. Some of the most enduringly successful filmmakers we've ever known. Yes, they're at it again. Those crazy carry-on characters are running yeah. amuck all over Africa. What is it? Why have we stopped? The all right? Elephant. Well, I didn't think it was ours. It's a riotous carry-on up the jungle, where the big game for the great white hunters is hands, knees, and bumps a daisy. Evelyn. Peter Rogers and Gerald Thomas guarantee the funniest safari that has ever been disorganized. Excuse me. In Carry On Up The Jungle. First up this week is Carry On Up The Jungle, which was released in UK cinemas on the 20th of March 1970 and was the 19th film in the legendary Carry On franchise. The plot, such as it is, goes as follows. Lady Evelyn Bagley, as played by Joan Sims, mounts an expedition to find her long-lost baby, carelessly mislaid many years earlier on a previous trip to Africa. The expedition is led by hunter Bill Boozy, played by Sid James, with Bernard Breslau as his scout, and also along for the ride are Lady Bagley's maid June, played by Jackie Piper, and two academics, Professor Inigo Tinkle and Claude Chumley, played by Frankie Howard and Kenneth Connor, on the hunt for the rare Uzalum bird. 
Their plans are derailed by a vine-swinging jungle boy who falls in love with June, a rogue gorilla, and two local tribes who have very different plans for our heroes. Based on that description, I'm sure it will come as no surprise to viewers to find that the original film title was Carry On Tarzan. But realistically, there was no way that Rogers and Thomas were going to resolve that copyright nightmare on their notoriously limited budgets. So the film was made under the title Carry On Jungle Boy, before a post-production reconsideration settled on Carry On Up The Jungle. You may have noticed that Kenneth Williams is conspicuously absent from the main cast. He was in fact offered the role of Professor Inigo Tinkle, but couldn't make it work around the writing schedule for the Kenneth Williams TV show. Rather than not appear in the film at all, Rogers and Thomas did offer him the role of King Tonka, but Williams turned it down in disgust on discovering that the character doesn't appear until the end of the film. Another refusenik was Jim Dale. The character of Jungle Boy was written with him in mind, and it's certainly easy to imagine him in the role. Dale had already appeared in 10 carry-on films in the previous seven years, so he was seen by many as an integral part of the core team. But these had usually been romantic lead roles, and by 1970, Jim Dale was being taken much more seriously as an actor and comedian, so he couldn't really see the appeal of a part which mainly consisted of grunting. This decision represented a parting of the ways with the Carry On franchise, and Jim Dale didn't work with the team again until Carry On Columbus, which fortunately falls well outside the remit of this podcast, so we don't ever need to speak of it again. So the role of Jungle Boy went to Terry Scott. And for a while, Professor Tinkle's part hung in the balance too. (laughs) As Peter Rogers had a sudden attack of anxiety after he offered the role to Frankie Howard, despite having actively but unsuccessfully pursued him for a couple of recent carry-on roles. Rogers was concerned that Frankie's comedic style might upset the balance of the team. However, ever the professional, Frankie wrote to Peter Rogers to reassure him that he was well aware of the carry-on team work ethic and shooting schedules, and advising him to stop worrying and put a bottle of champagne on ice. Personally, I would argue that Rogers' instincts were right to an extent – Howard makes the best of some very lacklustre dialogue in this film, and often the only titters to be had are from the tried and tested Frankie Howard bits of business. But Frankie seems to have enjoyed himself, because on his last day on set he wrote to Peter Rogers to thank him for the happiest film experience he'd ever had. And Jackie Piper too, in her first of four carry-on films, having been drafted in to replace series regular Angela Douglas, spoke of how much she enjoyed the experience – talking of the laughter on set and the happy atmosphere created by Gerald Thomas. And to be honest, at this point, it's starting to sound like the cast are having a little bit more fun than the audience here, which always seems a bit unfair. But if it helps, the cast also contains series regular Charles Hawtrey in the role of King Tonka, and Valerie Leon in her first of four film roles in 1970 as the leader of the Lubby Dubby tribe. Now I'm not here to dunk on the carry-on film series in general, because there's usually something to enjoy in one of these movies, but I'm afraid I find Carry On Up the Jungle to be a bit of a lacklustre outing. I'm struggling to identify a standout moment or a memorable gag in this one, particularly coming hot on the heels of 1969's Carry On Camping, which is acknowledged as a bit of a classic in carry-on terms. Frankie Howard, Joan Sims and Charles Hawtrey are pros as always, and Sid James could do this stuff in his sleep. Like Howard, he's doing his best to put his famous comedic topspin on the dialogue, but he's not given too much to work with here. For anyone who's already less than comfortable with the carry-on style, or any of those dated comedic themes of this vintage which have aged like milk, then this film is not going to do anything to win you over, I don't think. The only black character given any lines is the very much not-black actor Bernard Breslau, and the leching and ogling quotient does seem to be a little bit higher than usual in this film. But as usual with these movies, the women end up in control of the situation, and after some jungle movie tropes are sent up, and the gang are rescued from a very carry-on vision of captivity, everything is tied up neatly, and ends with a very silly gag which is, to be fair, quite a smart callback from earlier in the film. And I'm not sure if this reflects more on the films on offer in 1970, or the tastes of the British public in general. But surprisingly, Carry On Up the Jungle was the UK's eighth highest grossing film of 1970. So I'm happy to accept that maybe I am missing something. So that's a bit of a quick whistle-stop tour of Carry On Up the Jungle. We've got a lot to pack in this week, so I haven't got too much time to go into a lot more detail, but 
Let's be honest, this is a carry-on film, so I'm not going to weary you by delving into the intricacies of the plot or the cast or the inspiration behind its production. You know what to expect. It's not a classic of the genre, but James, Sims, Breslau, Howard and Connor deliver the goods as normal, and Jackie Piper is a really welcome addition to the cast. And I'll leave you to make your own judgment call on how keen you are to see Terry Scott in a loincloth, and to thank your lucky stars that they didn't use any of the takes where apparently it often slipped and failed to clothe his loin as intended. Okay, that's probably enough carrying on just for the moment. We'll catch up with the gang again later. But first, a word from our sponsor, before we set sail with our second movie franchise of the week, with Doctor in Trouble. Grill ready. On grill. Sprouts to simmer? Simmer sprouts. Chips ready? In chips. All systems go, Mark? All systems go wash hands for dinner. You give the orders, today's high-speed gas cooker does the rest. So clean-looking, so modern and efficient, well worth a special trip to your nearest gas showroom. Before we dive into the next film, Doctor in Trouble, I wanted to talk about one of its stars. The actor playing the hero's nemesis, TV doctor Basil Beecham, is Simon D, who may not be immediately familiar to everybody, certainly not as an actor, because Simon D was best known as a DJ and TV presenter, but most memorably, he was one of the first truly huge UK TV celebrities. Dee was such an achingly cool, uber-fashionable representation of swinging 60s style that he's rumoured to be an inspiration for the character of Austin Powers. Though I think his influence is much more obviously seen in the style of presenters like Jonathan Ross or Chris Evans. And for a little while in the late 60s, he was one of the most famous people in the country. Now we're all familiar with the concept of an overnight success, but Simon D became the very opposite, an overnight failure, a roller coaster ride of a career with a gradual journey to the highest highs, followed by a sudden sheer drop into not just anonymity, but ignominy. The very embodiment of the star that shines so bright, it burns itself out. So who was Simon D? Or should I say... Or, as he was known to his mother, Cyril Nicholas Henty Dodd. Young Henty Dodd was born in Salford, Lancashire in 1935, and he was privately educated before serving in the Royal Air Force as part of his compulsory national service. And it was here that he was first introduced to the world of broadcasting when he successfully auditioned to work on British Forces Radio. Upon being demobbed in 1958, he hit the civilian job market with force, working his way through an extensive CV of short-term jobs from bouncer in a coffee bar to leaf sweeper in Hyde Park. But his fortunes took a turn when in 1964, a friend invited him to join his latest entrepreneurial venture, a pirate radio ship to be moored in international waters off the south of England, broadcasting pop music to the swinging youth of 1960s Britain. And just like that, Cyril Nicholas Henty Dodd became the much more radio-friendly Simon D, the first DJ to broadcast on Radio Caroline, the station which launched the British pirate radio revolution. D was a big hit on Radio Caroline, and this success soon led to other opportunities with Radio Luxembourg and eventually the BBC which was probably just as well, because he had already become a thorn in the side of the Radio Caroline station directors because of his refusal to stick to the playlist or obey the captain. In 1966, Simon D was offered the most prestigious job in pop music broadcasting, presenting BBC Television's flagship music programme Top of the Pops. And this soon led to an offer to join the launch of BBC Radio One, the corporation's attempt to wrest the attention of Britain's youth away from the dangerously unregulated waters of pirate radio and back to the safety of the good old land-based Beeb. But here, true to form, Simon D promptly butted heads with the management by playing music from their band list. Despite this, in 1967, 
the BBC offered Simon D the role he is most remembered for, bringing a US-style sensibility to the staid world of the British chat show with his TV series D-Time. This early evening chat show, with its iconic and much-mimicked end credit sequence of D cruising through London in an open-top E-type Jaguar with a leggy dolly bird by his side, regularly garnered viewing figures of up to 18 million avid watchers. The show went out live with an elaborate set and a guest list which reads like a who's who of 60s celebrity. And the few clips still available are evidence of Dee's effortless charm and broadcasting skill. But sadly, this landmark TV event was shortly lived because Dee, with his history of rocking the boat, yet again managed to fall foul of BBC executives. Fully aware of his success and value, Simon D went to BBC Head of Light Entertainment, Bill Cotton, to demand a salary which he felt better reflected the importance of his name in their TV listings. The BBC, however, thought otherwise and suggested a pay cut to test his loyalty, rather than the 300% rise he was actually hoping for. This led to D making the second most pivotal career choice of his life, when in 1970, He left the BBC and he moved to ITV, where he was offered a two-year contract worth £100,000 for his own Sunday night chat show on the newly launched London Weekend Television. But he found himself scheduled straight after a very similar chat show, hosted by star of the British satire boom and part owner of London Weekend Television, David Frost. The format was doomed to failure from the start because Frost had first refusal on the biggest celebrity guests, leaving Dee with a less enticing reserve list and a dwindling viewership. Dee was quick to blame David Frost for the failure, accusing him of deliberately sabotaging his show. But the final death knell for Simon Dee's ITV venture actually came when former Bond actor George Lazenby employed his license to kill on Dee's career with a rambling interview in which he took the opportunity to publicly name the senators he thought were responsible for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which gave LWT all the ammunition they needed to end Simon D's contract after only six months. Now persona non grata to pretty much every broadcasting outlet in Britain, Simon D's career as he knew it was essentially over. And before long, he'd gone from earning £250 per episode and partying with the Beatles and Princess Margaret, an apparently compulsory part of 1960s fame, to signing on for unemployment benefit at Fulham Labour Exchange and eventually taking work as a bus driver. Rudderless, dejected and isolated from the celebrity circles he'd so much enjoyed, Dee fell into paranoia and even convinced himself that he was being bugged by the Secret Service as part of a concerted effort by the British establishment to oust him due to his vociferous opposition to Harold Wilson's government. In 1974, having struggled to give up the extravagant lifestyle he'd so enjoyed at the height of his fame, Simon D. found himself serving 28 days in Pentonville Prison for non-payment of rates. And he later found himself on the wrong side of the law once again, for the crime of vandalising a toilet seat decorated with a painting of Petula Clark's face. It's a combination of words I've never seen in one sentence before. His defence being that he felt it was unacceptably disrespectful to Petula. And if the resulting custodial sentence seems like harsh punishment for a minor case of lavatorial criminal damage, it's interesting to note that the magistrate who presided over his case in a remarkable example of conflict of interest, was Dee's former boss, the BBC head of light entertainment, Bill Cotton. So in this week's film, Doctor in Trouble, Dee's first proper screen role after a cameo in The Italian Job, we see Simon Dee in 1970 at what must have seemed like the very height of his career. Yet unknowingly, he was facing its ignominious end. Within a few years, his public disgrace would be as famous and well-documented as his sudden rise to fame. It's often argued that Simon D was responsible for his own downfall with his defiant attitude, high opinion of his own worth and lack of respect for management. But D was a charming and intelligent presenter 
and natural in front of the camera and truly passionate about broadcasting. I guess he just wasn't very good at following rules. And you know what? It later came to light. He was right all along. He really was being monitored by the British Secret Service for years. Simon D was such an entertainment icon that it felt wrong to let him make an appearance on the podcast without taking a moment to pay our respects to his extraordinary, if short-lived, career. Not just because Simon D was a star, but because he also represents a warning from the past. You are never too high to be laid low by the vagaries of show business. And even the biggest marquee name in the business can one day end up as a forgotten footnote in entertainment history. Emergency! Make way! Here comes the doctor! You shouldn't be out of bed. I hardly ever am. <laughs> in Doctor in Trouble. Oh. The very latest in that laughter-making line of doctor comedies. That's better, isn't it? Wind. I told you it was wind. I said it was. And what could be a better cure for wind than a Mediterranean cruise on a luxurious liner? Oh, I was just showing Dawn how to get the drawers down. <laughs> Doctor in Trouble on the Golden Horn as a stowaway with nowhere to stow away. Shut up, you little idiot. I'm not a stowaway. What's your name, Captain? Humphrey. But if you like, you can call me Hum for short. Good job your name isn't Bumfrey, isn't it? <laughs> On the craziest cruiser that ever put to sea. It's about my little girl, Dawn. Oh, yes, a lovely girl. She certainly got it. <laughs> yes, and you're not getting any of it. They missed Doctor in Trouble, but don't you. It really is the laugh of a lifetime. Our second film of the week is Doctor in Trouble, which was based on the book Doctor on Toast by Richard Gordon. It was actor Leslie Phillips' third Doctor film, and also the seventh and final of the Doctor in the House film franchise. Doctor in Trouble was released in UK cinemas in June 1970, and it centres around Leslie Phillips' character Dr Burke and his hapless attempts to propose to his model girlfriend Ophelia, which somehow result in him becoming a stowaway on a cruise ship helmed by his fearsome boss's equally fearsome brother. Like its predecessors, the film was produced by Betty Box and directed by Rafe Thomas. And it was written by Jack Davis, already known to the team for his work on Doctor in Clover, but also for films like Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, Gambit and Monte Carlo or Bust. The Doctor films didn't have quite such a lengthy roster of regular actors as the Carry On films, but at this stage you could certainly expect to see Leslie Phillips as Dr Burke and James Robertson Justice as senior consultant Sir Lancelot Spratt. And in this film they have support from Robert Morley as Captain George Spratt, Simon D as actor Basil Beecham, aka TV's Dr Dare, Angela Scular as Dr Burke's girlfriend Ophelia, and a host of other very familiar faces, including Harry Seacombe, Irene Handel, Freddie Jones, Graham Chapman, Joan Sims, and John Le Majurier. Although Robert Morley wasn't actually intended to be in the film at all, the initial plan was for James Robertson Justice to take on the dual role of both Dr Burke's boss, senior consultant Sir Lancelot Spratt, and also his twin brother, cruise ship captain George Spratt. However, prior to production... James Robertson Justice had suffered a serious stroke and was rushed from his home in Inverness to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary for brain surgery. He recovered, but he was left weak and with a permanent tremor in his right arm. He had still wanted to play both parts, but sadly he just clearly wasn't well enough. So Robert Morley, who had in fact been the original choice to play Sir Lancelot, was hired to play the brother, Captain George Spratt. And it's heartwarming to note that Rafe Thomas and Betty Box insisted on giving James Robertson Justice full pay for both parts as a thank you for his valued contribution to the whole film series. In terms of plot, as you might imagine, Doctor in Trouble is a comedy of errors, with the hapless Dr Burke having the kind of run of bad luck they write country and western songs about. Hard as he might to impress the nurses at St Swithin's Hospital, they're all bewitched by TV's fictional Dr Dare, 
as played by Dr Burke's old-school nemesis Basil Beecham. And if that wasn't annoying enough, when Dr Burke is sent on an emergency house call, I'll remember them, who should be the patient but Dr Dare himself, who is promptly admitted to St Swithin's and manages to win over not only the nurses, but also gruff Sir Lancelot himself, who recommends that actor Basil Beecham should take a well-deserved rest on Sir Lancelot's brother's cruise ship. Meanwhile, Dr Burke is trying to find an opportunity to propose to his girlfriend, Ophelia, before she goes off on her next modelling assignment, but they're always being interrupted. So in last-minute desperation, he dashes off to catch her before she leaves aboard. Well, what are the chances? Her modelling assignment finds her on the same cruise ship as Basil Beecham, the one captained by Sir Lancelot's brother. Dr Burke gets there too late to be let on board as a visitor, but he will brook no opposition at this point, so he sneaks aboard, then accidentally gets knocked out and awakes hours later to find himself all at sea as a shoeless stowaway. So the first half of the film largely revolves around Dr Burke trying to avoid being caught by the master-at-arms, played by Freddie Jones, who seems to be curiously obsessed with stowaway detection. I'd honestly no idea it was such a large part of the job description. Meanwhile, Basil Beecham is struggling to maintain his suave demeanour, laid low as he is with a very nasty bout of seasickness. Ophelia and the other models, which include Jutta Stensgaard, by the way, who we'll definitely see again in 1970 because she had a very busy year, well, they're working their way around a sequence of frankly quite unglamorous locations on deck in which to pose in swimwear at the behest of their photographer Roddy, played by Monty Python's own Graham Chapman with the campometer turned up to 11. If you've ever watched any quantity of Python, you'll definitely have seen Chapman play this kind of character before, so you'll know what to expect. Captain Spratt experiences ongoing struggles with vulgar pools-winning passenger Llewellyn Wendover, who insists on five-star treatment from the captain at all times, despite his complete inability to grasp any of the basic social graces. Ah, money plus ignorance, always a charming combination. Wendover spends much of the film leching over every young girl on the ship under the impression that coming up on the pools makes you instantly attractive, but when he eventually makes an impression on young dancer Dawn Daly, he then has to contend with her forceful mother, the exquisite Irene Handel, who's fabulous in this film. A desperate Dr Burke eventually seeks help with his shoeless, cabinous existence on the cruise ship from his old-school nemesis Basil Beecham, who has now recovered from his mal de mer enough to not only enjoy the cruise but also enjoy the company of Ophelia and her friends, much to Dr Burke's chagrin. And just to add insult to injury, when Beecham finds out that Tony Burke is planning to propose to Ophelia, he turns him into the master-at-arms. But in an oddly complicated sequence of events, involving a photo shoot which would never pass the most basic risk assessment, Dr Burke making a heroic dive into the sea to save Ophelia, and then diagnosing the ship's doctor with hepatitis africonia, Dr Burke finds himself acting as ship's doctor for the rest of the cruise, leading to further unexpected adventures. And I won't give away the ending by telling you if any of the key characters succeed in disembarking from the ship arm in arm with the object of their affection, but given that Dr Burke is clearly a man who's walked under a ladder, tripped over a black cat and fell headlong into a mirror at some point in his life, you can probably guess how his story works out. By 1970, Rafe Thomas and Betty Box knew that Doctor in Trouble would be the last Doctor film, and they remember its production as quite an unhappy time. To them, James Robertson Justice was integral to the series, and they felt Morley just wasn't able to bring the same depth of humour to his performance. Rafe Thomas didn't like the film at all, saying, The unit was getting desperate, of course, and the title says it all. But it still, fortunately, continued making money, but I couldn't bear to make any more films in the series. And so Rank said, Well, right, would you allow us to dispose of your interest in a television series? And I said, Yes, I'd love to. And so they did. So this film was shot concurrently with the first series of the Doctor in the House TV programme, which was written by the aforementioned Graham Chapman and in which the also aforementioned Jutta Stensgaard had a recurring role. And one of the stars of the TV series, Jeffrey Davis, also has a small cameo in Doctor in Trouble. And the fact that ITV was so keen to turn this film franchise into a TV series, even after all these years, goes to show how much public appetite there still was for this medical comedy format. 
Doctor in Trouble itself, though, was slated by critics upon its release, and its reputation certainly hasn't improved much with age. But it's interesting to hear the experience of Observer newspaper reviewer Penelope Mortimer. When she saw the film at the cinema, she was baffled to find that the audience at the screening she attended were, and I quote, hooting with laughter, making her feel as though she had dropped from Mars, she said. And I think a modern audience might feel pretty similar. This style of comedy was getting pretty tired even by 1970, and there's plenty in this film that absolutely would not get a free pass now, especially the choice to cast white actor Graham Stark as an Indian ship steward. But if you know this period of filmmaking and you're familiar with the genre of British comedy, you'll feel pretty much at home watching Doctor in Trouble and you certainly won't encounter anything new or groundbreaking here. And it's a good fit with this week's Carry On films because I feel that by 1970 that Carry On writing style had crept into this franchise too. Particularly with the Wendover character played by Harry Seacombe, it may well be the most unlikable character I've ever seen Seacombe play a crude, vulgar, leching buffoon, exposing his lack of sophistication at every turn. And I am a bit uncomfortable about this mocking of the only working class passenger that we meet, which is much less in the spirit of Carry On, I feel, where it's usually the elite being made fun of. Although, let's be honest, new money is the absolute worst, isn't it? There's a running gag of Wendover willfully misunderstanding the rules of how to dress for dinner that was weak the first time out and then stretched wafer thin throughout the film. Like most of the characters, he's a pretty two-dimensional stereotype rather than a well-rounded character who acts in a believable way. Though it is possible I'm overthinking this film. Still, it's not all bad. Personally, I love Leslie Phillips, and he can work wonders with the most lacklustre script, adding a dash of his own warmth and charm and that beautiful delivery to elevate the material. It's a shame that John Le Majurier is so oddly underused in this film, because I'd love to have seen a bit more of those two old charmers on the screen together. Bearing in mind that he has no acting credentials at all, Simon D doesn't do a bad job in what is, after all, a pretty major role. Irene Handel is an absolute joy as social climbing Mrs Daly, trying to pair her daughter up with a captain and steer her away from the clutches of the vulgar Llewellyn Wendover. I honestly enjoyed every scene she was in. And later in the film, there's a completely pointless but otherwise fun cameo from Joan Sims as the captain of a Russian ship. This scene is entirely irrelevant to the plot, but it's always good to see Joni. And making it a hat trick this week... There's a very brief appearance at the end of the film from carry-on newcomer Jackie Piper, who we'll see more of shortly in our final film of the week. Much more of, in fact. So what can we say about Doctor in Trouble? I'm not sure it's going to win over many new fans these days, but if you know the franchise or this genre of British comedy in general, you'll be on familiar ground with the cast, the plot, the setups, and the characters – and you might find it a pleasantly nostalgic and undemanding way to pass 90 minutes or so. It's not exactly an essential watch, and I do think Thomas and Box were wise to call time on the franchise at the dawn of the new decade. Unlike the Carry On franchise where, despite the repeating cast, every new movie is a chance to press the reset button on characters, plots, settings and themes and update where necessary, the Doctor films are much more character-driven. And without James Robertson Justice returning as Sir Lancelot Spratt, there's just Leslie Phillips as poor Dr Tony Burke left to keep the audiences coming back. I just don't think that was going to be enough to keep the franchise afloat in the turbulent waters of the 1970s. So we bid a fond farewell to the Doctor in the House franchise for the very last time. And move on to our final film of the week after a short intermission. Enjoy the movies, like to know what the stars do on and off the set. It's good to know what's new. Then read all about it in the ABC film review. Collect those colored pinups of the guys and gals who send you. Hollywood gossip gets here right on cue. So read all about it in the ABC film review. The latest is they write about collectors' colony. 
comes over to you in film review. Read all about the big time, what the big time stars all do. Every month just five at ABC Film Review. Every month just five. Film Review. Yes, everyone's at it these days. The birds, the bees, and those hilarious carry-on characters. Why don't you go down front, sir? You'll see better. In the most laughable love-in of a lifetime. I have to vet them, don't I? Oh, vet? Is that the new word for it? I can't fix them up with the right partners until I find out what they do. And how. They live. Mm. Like the young widow at the tobacconist. You must have vetted her at least 50 times. Mm. Mm. Oh, good. Company. Oh, I'm fed up with this. I might as well be back home. Peter Rogers and Gerald Thomas invite you to carry on loving. We'll be bloody lucky if we do, mate. Because love, they say, makes the world go round. Don't miss carry on loving. You might even learn something. You must be joking. Our final movie this week is the second carry-on film of 1970 and the 20th of this 31-film franchise. Carry On Loving was released in the UK on the 20th of November 1970, but just to give you an idea of the well-oiled, fast-moving machine that was the carry-on franchise, screenwriter Talbot Rothwell started work on the script in October 1969. Not only was this before his contract for this film had even been drawn up, but it also predated shooting for the previous film, Carry On Up the Jungle. The actual filming for Carry On Loving had started in April 1970, and as usual, the team didn't stray too far from home, all interiors being shot in Pinewood Studios and the exteriors on the doorstep in and around Windsor. The historic market town, that is, not Barbara, she's not even in this film. This second team outing of 1970 revolves around the Wedded Bliss Computer Dating Agency, headed up by couples Sidney and Sophie Bliss, played by Sid James and Hattie Jakes. Terry Scott is back this time as a customer at the agency, along with team newcomer Richard O'Callaghan, son of the actress Patricia Hayes, by the way, who was herself a carry-on veteran. O'Callaghan was being brought in as a kind of second-generation Jim Dale-type romantic lead, and here he plays Bertram Buffett, a shy and awkward young man whose hobby is making model airplanes out of milk bottle tops and he's looking for help with finding a girlfriend. These two facts may not be unrelated. Other clients include Joan Sims as Esme Crowfoot, a client whose only successful match so far seems to have been an illicit one with Sid himself, Kenneth Williams as Percival Snooper, a singularly unqualified marriage counsellor, who comes to the agency after being advised that his customer satisfaction rating might be improved if he actually had some experience of being in a relationship. Jackie Piper is back as a model who quite accidentally gets caught up in the romantic shenanigans, and Imogen Hassel plays Jenny Grubb, another customer at the agency who undergoes a rather startling glow-up, as I believe the youngsters call it. Charles Hawtrey also turns up as a private investigator who Sophie Bliss hires to prove Sid's infidelity. And I can't believe this film got from script to screen without someone pointing out that in Carry On World, the character name Percival Snooper should absolutely have been given to the private investigator, not the marriage counsellor. Whatever were they thinking? So the plot is a little bit convoluted, but the gist of it is this. Naive young Bertram Moffat, a novice in the ways of love, seeks help from the Wedded Bliss computer dating agency. Sid takes his details and feeds his index card into the cutting-edge computer, which covers one wall of the office, and to Sid's chagrin, Bertram is soon matched to a certain Esme Crowfoot. This is due to the fact that the huge computing machines on the wall are literally a front for what goes on behind, which is Sophie Bliss sitting in the back office, manually matching index cards as she sees fit, then returning the chosen match through a slot in the wall. And the match he's chosen for poor Bertram is a customer who Sid has been taking far too much of a personal interest in. Meanwhile, Kenneth Williams as marriage counsellor Percival Snooper is having an agonising conversation at cross-purposes 
with a poor couple who can't get him to understand the nature of their delicate marital problems. Snooper's boss advises that he needs to get married if he wants to keep his job. However, it's worth bearing in mind that Snooper's boss is Grady from The Shining, so he may not be the best source of marital advice either. And wedded Bliss client Terry Scott is none too happy with his latest match, who is a quiet, dowdy mouse of a girl with a terrifying mother, played by Miss Marple herself, Joan Hickson, and a large family of older relatives who apparently expect the girl's future husband to keep them in the manner to which they've become accustomed. This provokes a severe bout of dyspraxia in Scott, who runs fleeing from the building, leaving a trail of broken furniture and spilled tea in his wake. It's actually quite a neat piece of physical comedy, and it's frankly the most endearing that character will be for the whole duration of the film. Bertrand Moffat pops off to meet his date at a local bar, but instead he runs into Jackie Piper as model Sally. He thinks she's his date and she thinks he's the photographer who's come to take saucy photos of her. Shenanigans ensue involving confusion, embarrassment and more talking at cross purposes for what seems like quite a long time, to be honest. Further developments involve the dowdy young lady from Terry Scott's earlier date becoming Jackie Piper's flatmate and metamorphosing into a buxom beauty, much more the sort of role we're used to seeing Imogen Hassel in, and bumping into Terry Scott again, who suddenly finds her a lot more interesting. Also the discovery that Esme Crowfoot has a secret and very jealous boyfriend, a wrestler called Gripper Burke, played by Bernard Breslau, who else, who unexpectedly turns up at a very inopportune moment for both Sid and a very unlucky Bertram Moffat. And the revelation that Sid and Sophie Bliss were never actually married, merely playing the part for appearances, while Sid does everything he can to avoid the promise of marriage he made to Sophie years ago, prompting her to try her luck with Percival Snooper instead. And that's actually just a light-touch description of what happens in the film. I've seen a lot of reviews suggesting that Carry On Loving has no plot, but now I attempt to explain it to you, I'm realising how wrong that is. There's a lot of characters being moved around this chessboard some just arriving in the wrong place at the wrong time, and others being actively manipulated by Sid in an attempt to maintain the easy status quo of his life. And the end result of all of this is a marriage, which is attended by all of the couples we've met during the movie just to tie everyone up into neat little bundles. Though, of course, as this is a carry-on film about marriage and relationships, it ends not with a glorious celebration of romance, but a room full of the most unhappy human faces you've ever seen in a comedy. All of which soon find themselves plastered with whipped cream and glacé cherries in the film's well-loved and remembered ending, where the entire wedding party dissolves into a massive, ill-tempered food fight. I think it's fair to say that the golden days of the carry-on movies were already receding in the rearview mirror at this point. But regardless, these films were still really popular with the public, perhaps because there's a satisfying familiarity with them. It's a fairly risk-free ticket purchase, after all, where you get to enjoy those very familiar faces working within a very familiar template. The settings may change, but the jokes remain pretty consistent. As Sherlock Holmes once described Dr Watson, the carry-on films had represented a fixed point in a changing age. And while I'm inclined to think that carry-on loving may well be the point at which they made the mistake of trying too hard to change with the age, well, why listen to me? when the box office receipts show that this film's sales continued so far into 1971, after its late November 70 release, it became the fourth most successful UK box office hit of 1971. And at the miserly cost of £170,000, with its contemporary settings and no expensive location filming, Carry On Loving ended up being one of the most inexpensive and most profitable films of the whole series. But it does appear there was at least one change which wasn't entirely successful, and that was the introduction of poor Richard O'Callaghan. The story goes that one day he'd been minding his own business in a stage play in London, when apparently he was chauffeured to the Dorchester Hotel to meet Peter Rogers and Gerald Thomas about joining the carry-on team. It's even said that he'd been picked up in a white Rolls Royce, which doesn't sound much like the parsimonious Rogers and Thomas to me, but it's a great image, so we'll go with it. When Carry On Loving was released... O'Callaghan received a rather glowing review from the Times, who were generally positive about the wave of fresh faces joining the franchise, and they particularly commended O'Callaghan for playing the obligatory innocent with absolutely the right single-minded seriousness 
an apparent unconsciousness of the humour of his own situation. He then went on to make 1971's Carry On At Your Convenience as well, but apparently he was just never asked to return after that. Not that he seems to be worried, because O'Callaghan reports that he barely made £2,000 in royalties from his time on the Carry On team, compared with the rather more profitable work he went on to do in TV, theatre, radio and even more recently podcasts. Most notably, he played Dandelion in the innocent-shattering kinder trauma that is 1978's animated film Watership Down, and he voiced the role of Merry in the fabulous 1980 BBC radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. If you're even slightly interested in knowing more about Richard O'Callaghan or his career, there's an absolutely charming interview with him that I found online, and I'll post a link to it in the show notes. And I wasn't sure about the introduction of O'Callaghan myself when I first watched the film, but on repeat viewing, he's really grown on me. And so is the film, if I'm honest. I would cheerfully dispose of the first couple of scenes, which feel like a hollow and soulless attempt to take all of those beloved double entendres of old and halve them down to mere singles. They feel a bit forced and grubby and nasty. And I feel they set the wrong tone for the rest of the film, which is much more standard carry-on fare especially once we arrive at the Wedded Bliss Computer Dating Agency and we get to see Sid James and Hattie Jakes do what they do best. The one rogue element throughout the film being the Terry Scott character, who quite frankly would need a cold shower and a chlamydia screening test before I'd want to be in the same room as him, and poor old Imogen Hassel's Jenny Grubb deserved so much better. However, there are plenty of positives we can enjoy instead. The absolute finest gag in the film comes from an uncredited Peter Butterworth in a one-off scene as a crippiness client at the Wedded Bliss Agency. He's almost worth the price of admission alone. Despite the many new faces, we've still got the core carry-on team of James, Jakes, Williams and Hawtrey doing their thing, as well as Patsy Rowland getting a chance to glam up and have some fun with her role as Percival Snooper's housekeeper. And Jackie Piper continues to earn her place in the team, as model Sally Martin. Despite the ridiculous implausibility of her character falling into a relationship with awkward milk bottle modelling Bertram Muffet, she absolutely sells it with a genuinely sweet and charming performance. Also, I've got to say, I absolutely loved her flat. And incidentally, I also enjoyed the ridiculous computer prop from the dating agency, which looks like something Graham Garden would have built in the goodies, but apparently it was in fact a prop from the classic Jerry Anderson TV series UFO. And for the competitive amongst you, there's the opportunity to play a potentially ruinous spot-the-character-actor drinking game. Or for the sake of your liver, it might just be safer to claim yourself a great British film geek point and perhaps treat yourself to a Terry's All Gold if you spot any of the following very recognisable faces. The multi-talented Kenny Lynch, Selwyn Froggett himself, Bill Maynard, the very busy Julian Holloway, who's going to pop up quite a bit around 1970, Anna Karen from On the Buses, Mike Grady, soon to start in a very famous advert for an unnamed US cola drink, as well as Citizen Smith later on, the always recognisable Anne Way, or Dad's Army star, Bill Pertwee. Sadly, there's also a scene cut from the movie which would also have provided appearances by another Dad's Army actor, James Beck, and busy hammer star Jutta Stensgaard. And there's double points if you recognise that the boxing second in Gripper Burke's gym is played by an actor called Joe Cornelius, who we'll definitely be encountering again towards the end of the series. His brother Billy Cornelius was also a popular bit part actor, who himself had starred in eight Carry On films, most notably as Oddbod Jr. in Carry On Screaming, and he also played the police sergeant in The Mind of Mr. Soames, which we covered in episode one and which also featured Julian Holloway, by the way. So have fun with that, and remember, drink responsibly. If you do decide to give Carry On Loving a try, I would love to know what you think. It's definitely not one of the classics as far as I'm concerned, but a lot of people seem to really enjoy it, and it's a fun slice of nostalgia with a lot more going for it on second viewing than I'd originally given it credit for. But it's definitely part of this messy transition period that cinema finds itself in around 1970. Judging by the box office returns enjoyed by Carry On Up the Jungle and Carry On Loving this year, it looks like Gerald Thomas and Peter Rogers don't have too much to worry about yet. But one of the things that fascinates me about this period in filmmaking is the creeping uncertainty. 
the growing sense that the audience wants change, but no one's entirely clear on what that should look like. And this is going to lead to some clunking great missteps along the way, but it will be fun to follow the journey and see where we all end up. Later in the series, we'll be looking at some very different styles of British comedy, as well as what Hollywood had to offer. And maybe that will give us some sense of what to expect as we continue to explore the decade. Well, that's more than enough from me this week. I know it's been a bit of a monster episode, but it just didn't make sense to me to cover these films any other way. But going forward, I'll be focusing more on one film at a time so I can get each episode out quicker and keep some momentum going. So please keep an eye out on Facebook and Instagram or subscribe to the pod so you'll know when there's a new episode out. Huge thanks to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed at least a small part of this longer than usual episode and that you'll join me again in the future because we've barely scratched the surface of what 1970 has to offer. There are thrillers, disaster movies, war movies, westerns, more comedies and even more horror yet to enjoy here on the Celluloid 70s podcast. The podcast that celebrates the films of the 1970s, whether they deserve it or not.